0: welcome to the face it podcast i'm amy lloyd and i'm amanda lloyd and we are here to have conversations with amazing people who have faced major life challenges or adversity head-on my mom and i hope their stories inspire you and offer relatable solutions that you can use in your life too so So join join us and and let's face it it together. together It keeps coming up for us to talk about adoption, and interestingly enough, um, Valerie Cantella happened to hear our podcast while she was walking in her home of Santa Barbara, just about a two-hour drive um, up the coast from where I've lived the past 20 years. Um, While our paths didn't cross then, they are crossing now, which I'm very happy to say. So Valerie, thank you so much for making the time to sit with us on the Facebook podcast today.
1: I'm so excited, Amy, and just to talk to you and connect over this really interesting and important topic of adoption.
0: Yes, it, it is. And like I said, it really does keep coming up in my awareness and people saying, I think you should be talking about adoption, and I'm adopted, and I believe I shared that with you in our first conversation, so there's so many different perspectives, so I'm so interested to hear your story fully, and I know you're a highly accomplished person and also author, sharing your own life story in your book, Offscript, A Mom's Journey Through Adoption, A Husband's Alcoholism, and Special Needs Parenting. Um, Sounds like it's available at most retailers and then online through ebook and paperback correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay, good. So we'll make sure to add that in the show notes. And I just want to say congratulations on that and on publishing. That could be an entire other episode (laughs) to discuss, and I would love to discuss actually. So congratulations. How long has that been out actually?
1: So I started writing it in February of 2021 and I published it in February, 2022. So it was my little COVID baby.
0: That's amazing. It's so cool to see all the creativity that's come out of the pandemic across the board everyone kind of going inward to their passions. We had to go inward, but that's, that's so, right. Congratulations. Thank um, you. again, I'm happy that you'll share part of that story with us today, as we mentioned adoption and I say us, but it's one of us today. Amanda is really sorry to miss you, but I'm happy that I get to have this conversation. And like I said, this topic is close to my heart because, well, I t- told you, but I didn't tell the audience that I'm adopted myself and believe truly believe we choose our family adopted or otherwise and everyone's story is so different and so i wanted to see if you can share a bit about yours if we go back a bit how or when you decided adoption was an option for you
1: yeah well it's so interesting and like you said there are so many different aspects to adoption and um being an adoptive mom Uh, it's been a really interesting journey. So just backing up a little bit, I am a type one diabetic. I was diagnosed when I was 10. And then when I was 21, I was diagnosed with diabetic kidney disease. And I don't know if you remember that movie, Steel Magnolias with Julia Roberts, where she is diabetic and has kidney disease Mm -hmm. and actually dies in the movie because she gives birth to a baby. And that came out my senior year when I got this diagnosis and I thought that that was going to be my life. And so I was told, you'll never be able to have a baby. You probably will have a kidney transplant. This is really serious and life-threatening. And so chills. it was, you know, I, I always thought I would be a mom and I guess I just assumed that I would be a mom through, um, biological children. And that would just be that because that's how I grew up. But um, that really opened the door to thinking about adoption. You know, I'm just in college. So I wasn't ready to have a family. But then the man I started dating uh, also was adopted. And I saw the story through his eyes. And as we got more serious, we talked about, oh, well, we'll have a family through adoption. And that was always our plan. Wow. So
0: Okay. And, and I'm sorry. So that was always your plan because is that what he wanted since he was adopted?
1: Well, it was always our plan because at that point we're believing that I'm headed toward a kidney failure and having to have a kidney transplant. And so the only way safe for me would have been to adopt a baby.
0: Okay. No matter what. So, okay. Got it. So no matter what you both knew, this was the plan. And of course he's on board because he understands the whole adoption world. Absolutely. Okay. okay got it.
1: And then we had a little detour, and I thankfully found out that my kidneys were miraculous, miraculously healed. Mm. And um, my doctor said it's okay for you to go ahead and try to have a baby.
0: Okay. And
1: so had two miscarriages, and then got pregnant with my son Nick. And he, I had some complications during pregnancy, but he was born super healthy and great and it was wonderful and i'm so grateful that i have him mm-hmm. but for for child number two we thought well let's go back to our plan of adoption because okay. you know if we can help a child and we were looking at russia because that's where my first husband's family was from oh, okay they're russian um by descent and so our last name was very russian and mm-hmm. We thought, well, we'll adopt this baby and she will have some grandparents so it will be able to speak her native language. Okay. And then she'll probably look a lot like her brother because my husband Since was a husband, Russian. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Russian descent. Okay. So, this uh, that's fascinating that that was the plan from the get go. So, you didn't even try any other options or in the this is like the first step is we're going to adopt from Russia.
1: Yeah, we really didn't look that much at domestic adoption. I think I was really fearful of someone coming to take the baby back after we had bonded with the baby, because you hear those stories. Mm -hmm. And we also saw, as we were researching it, there was just so much opportunity for international adoption, and the kids that live in orphanages in other parts of the world uh, live very desperate and difficult lives and and most likely our daughter would have died in the orphanage had she not been adopted.
0: So she was in the orphanage and I'm sure we've all seen those, you know, 2020s and unfortunately the investigative reports on these orphanages in Russia. Was she under similar conditions to what we've seen on television?
1: Absolutely. So when we went there, it took a while for us to, you know, get through the process and do all the paperwork and then for a baby to be available to us. Sure. We go into the orphanage, orphanage and she's in a third world country part of Russia. So Vladivostok, which is very poor, okay, far East. And you see these six by six wooden cribs with, they're basically like cages without tops because- there is no interaction between the caregivers and the children. The children don't cry because no one's going to respond. And she was severely malnourished. So she was 15 pounds at 16 months. And for for example, my son was probably 15 pounds at three months.
0: So before we we get, how did you find out about this particular orphanage? orphanage? And you you already knew you wanted a girl. Is that correct? Right. And so you mm-hmm. had said we we're looking for a girl and is there an agency in Russia that is helping guide you? Yeah, with- so what we did
1: is once we made the decision that we were going to start the adoption process knowing it would take a while we knew we wanted a girl just so we could have a boy and a girl. Sure. We started researching agencies in the United States that worked with Rus- with Russia in the Far East. Okay, gotcha.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then we decided to work with a small agency out of Utah that had um, successfully placed a number of children and they had a relationship. And the ways agencies worked back then, and this is almost, well, this is 22 years ago. They each work in a different region and they have relationships with the adoption coordinators and the judges and the court system there. And so really they're your link to Russia.
0: Okay. Okay. So
1: that's how we did it. We chose an agency and then we did all the paperwork and they let us know when there was a baby available for adoption.
0: And then you travel there.
1: Then we traveled there. We 7,000 miles and we ended up getting to see her for one hour,
0: one over hour, the course. Of, a week Right after you arrived. Oh, and the, so you're there for a week. How, how long after you arrived, were you able to see her?
1: It, well, it ended up being a couple days because okay. the first day that we went to the orphanage, um, the caregiver came out and said the babies are sleeping and the orphanage director says you have to come back tomorrow. And oh. this is something, you know, if that was America, I I wouldn't have let that fly. I would have said, Hey, we've flown 7,000 miles to meet this child. And, but when you're in another country, you really play by their rules and you have to understand that culture. And we kind of a footnote on the culture thing. We had to buy a bunch of stuff for the orphanage that we hope actually went to the children. We bought hundreds of dollars worth of clothes and medical supplies and a fax machine. And this was a prerequisite.
0: They gave you a list of items that they needed before you could move. Or this is all part of the adoption process.
1: Well, the agency says, these are the gifts. These are the kinds of gifts they would like. Okay, and it's it. almost, you know, it's like a bribe basically yes. to help it go through. And okay, the saddest part is there are all these kids there needing to be adopted and there's this sense from the Russian side that uh, you wealthy Americans are coming over to steal our children. And on a social level, it's like, well, why don't you provide opportunities for families to plan their families more, offer yeah. birth control and, you know, different whole, there's a whole other conversation, but. Absolutely. So they yeah.
0: really, it's like this tug of war, it sounds like they know they need to place these babies in homes, but they really don't want to. They're really like, you're putting them out by you. Well, and it wasn't
1: really the people in the orphanage that were doing that. It was more the orphanage director. And then even Putin was in office when we were there. Okay. And he shut down uh, adoptions for a time as a political move because he wanted someone to do something. And so he shut down adoptions and they also shut down the heat in the orphanage in the middle of winter to try to achieve some political outcome. And okay. And you would think someone can't be as heartless as that these children are completely starving, but now that we're seeing what's happening across the world. Yeah. It's unsurprising.
0: Yes, absolutely. That is just it's so hard to imagine. It never seeing something like that only on TV it's almost surreal. Like you don't really believe it's happening. So I'm so happy that you're shedding light on this. So when you finally are able, you've given your gifts, you've been told to come back, you come back, you walk in and you said there's a lot of babies there that need to be adopted. How are there, are, is there rooms? Is it one room? Or is-
1: well, it's interesting because you just are walking in this big building, which is pretty quiet. The babies aren't crying. But you know, you can look down hallways and see little glimpses, but they bring you into a room, brought us into a room okay. mm-hmm. and brought Katie, our daughter, into a room to kind of introduce us. And it in Russia, it smelled like boiled cabbage because that's what they do a lot of okay. cabbage in that country. Okay. You know, different smells, different languages. And this child is looking at you like you you don't smell like anything familiar. You don't look like anything familiar. Yeah. Thankfully, my husband spoke um, some Russian and so he could talk to her a little bit. And then she got interested in his glasses and um, we had brought a few toys, but they don't have a lot of toys. She didn't even know how to play. And she's almost a year and a half at this point. A
0: year and a half and 15 pounds. Yeah. Wow. Oh my goodness. I mean,
1: I, I was an experienced mom and I was terrified of once we, adopted her of giving her a bath because she was so fragile and I could see every bone in her back. And I thought, I'm afraid I'm going to drop this child. And, And or, you know, she's just so, so little.
0: Wow. Gosh, that's so heartbreaking. And so you're spending this hour with her. And at that point, do you know that you for sure are able to adopt her?
1: So we know that basically she's the one that we can adopt okay. and we, ha- we have to, at that visit to Russia, we have to commit that we're going to come back a couple weeks later and go to court to adopt this child. Okay. Oh, you have to come back. Ago. So you come back to the U.S.
0: and then travel back to Russia a couple weeks later.
1: Right. Okay. And so what we did is we took video of Katie and we brought it back to our pre- pediatrician in the United States and said... What do you see here that might be concerning? And or is there anything? And she said, "Well, obviously severely malnourished, but you can feed her and love her and give her care and um, you know good living conditions and medicine, and she'll she should be fine." I'm she was concerned that she could barely crawl and didn't put weight on her legs, but and that all sounded fine to us because we knew we had a, we had said we'll take a correctable medical condition okay um we didn't we did not want a severely special needs child or a special needs child which when i'm saying that sounds horrible to say that because those children need homes too but we did not feel equipped to adopt a special needs child, but that's what we ended up getting.
0: I was going to say, as you're speaking, that's very fair to have your boundaries and know what you are able to provide. And that's honest. And I, everyone should be doing that truly, but I have heard that they won't disclose or maybe they can't disclose. Maybe they don't know the damage and the trauma that that child may have had.
1: Yeah, they really well with Russia you pretty much assume that the birth mother drank and okay. smoked and possibly did drugs during the pregnancy.
0: Okay, do they tell you that when you're before you or you kind of have known that gleaned this in all your research and our
1: our adoption say, without taking any ownership of it would say here are some of the conditions which are typical of people okay. that live in Russia. They we did know that she was the fourth live birth of seven Um, pregnancies that her birth mother had. And um, because they don't have access to birth control Mm -hmm. very Mm -hmm. easily there, it, there tend to be a lot of kids that get put up for adoption and there's no consequence for the birth mother to give the baby up for adoption. And they have, you know, lots of orphanages in place to handle these children.
0: Unfortunately,
1: they don't get Sufficient care there, and
0: do you so it's no? I'm just curious do some babies end up spending their entire childhoods in these orphanages?
1: Well, it's interesting that you asked that, and you had mentioned 2020 or um, 60 Minutes or one of those shows did a program on kids that grow up in orphanages and then are trained to be. IRS type of agents when they're in junior high and they're carrying guns around going to collect taxes from people. So wow,
0: okay, so that's
1: one of that. the possible outcomes. But our daughter, we didn't know it at the time, but she was in the special needs part of the orphanage. She was and so
0: disclose that
1: they didn't disclose okay. that. Okay, so we thought we she was she was a low birth weight, but she was probably born to a mother who had done drugs and smoked and drank during pregnancy. And we really didn't know what that, what the implications of that were. And then her, they said her mother had bronchitis often, but you know, she's so young. You can't, the things that she ended up being diagnosed with other than fetal alcohol syndrome, we, they wouldn't have been able to diagnose those at such a young age.
0: Okay. That makes sense. Okay. But, and she was diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome.
1: Yeah. So she was, she ended up being diagnosed with fetal alcohol exposure because Mm -hmm. we didn't have enough data points, but she definitely has some of the physical characteristics and her brain size measures smaller than what should have been at certain ages.
0: Okay. Okay. So, okay. So you finally, you finally get her home and she's just over a year old. Um, And then did you do more testing when you got home when she was one, just over one, or did you wait a little bit to see how she was developing?
1: So it was very apparent to us very quickly that she was not, that she was severely delayed. And so within, we obviously took her to our pediatrician right away, but within two months, we knew that her needs were more significant. And we got her involved in the regional center. It's called tri counties regional center for us, which is early childhood education and support. And so she ended up having occupational therapy, physical therapy. She has sensory integration issues, and we were having five days a week of therapists coming into the house to help her thrive. And, um, grow. And she did. She gained 10 pounds and grew five inches in one year. Wow. And she started okay. verbalizing and she started, she was able to walk and play, but really she couldn't initiate any play. Her brother really uh, set the stage and loved to say, come on, Katie, let's go do this. And he led all the activities, but she was, that was the beginning of her life with a lot of uh, needs.
0: And so had you and your husband anticipated, I mean, you knew it was going to be this large undertaking in endeavor, but did you expect that you would have in this in-home care five days a week and ha- be doing everything? I guess I'm wondering if you were prepared mentally for everything you needed to do pretty immediately.
1: I was not prepared for okay. any of it. Yeah. You know, I oh kind of going along the title of my book, it yeah. was completely Off-through, off my script. I, love I thought. Bio. I'm going to bring this baby home. She's going to be with us and it's going to be challenging having two children, but sure. you know, we have access to medical care and food yeah. and all the things she needs and we can provide it for her. So our, our fairy tale life will ensue and it really, sure. it really didn't. And I felt she also has reactive attachment disorder, which is common with kids in orphanages who don't learn how to attach properly to their parents. Okay. And so every time they move from a placement, so she was born in a baby hospital, then moved to another baby hospital and then put into the orphanage and then moved with us. So every time you move a child, that creates a break and it further prevents them from developing healthy attachments.
0: That makes complete sense. And she never got that to be even next to her mother after right. birth or have that human interaction. So then how does that um, play out then when she's at home with you? So when you walk out of the room, is she, would she act out?
1: Well, it's interesting because the way it, reactive attachment can play out a couple different ways. Okay. The, way out, the way it played out with us is that She could meet you on the street um, and say, Oh, I love you. And she could never say that to me until she was in high school.
0: Oh, okay. Okay.
1: Because she at a very basic level didn't trust anyone, any primary caregiver, because they had always left her. So sad. And so even though I had all this time of providing for her, she still couldn't trust that I was going to be there for her. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because the person that she, the second person that she has a problem like that with is my mom, because my mom did so much caregiving for her and was so active in her life that, um, we've seen it manifest there as well. And then her dad. And so it's just really interesting. I mean, that's why they tell you to talk and sing and hold your child because those attachment bonds are so critical. And and it's very, reactive attachment is very uncommon. Oh, so even is. getting, it's very uncommon as a society, maybe one to 2% of people in the United States have it.
0: Oh, okay. But I, I thought it was pretty common though for these babies in these orphanages.
1: It's very common with okay. kids in orphanages or kids in foster care uh, or yes. kids even that have been in a NICU where their parents couldn't interact with them regularly. Oh. And- um, so she, so,
0: it wasn't until high school that she was able to at least verbalize that she loves you.
1: Verbalize it where it wasn't, I didn't feel like it was prompted by someone else saying, okay, oh, Katie, you tell your mom you love her?
0: I see. Okay. She actually came to it on her own. Right. Share yeah. that with you. Okay. Oh my goodness. So then from the time she's home and, you know, starting school and is it still a constant influx of help and therapies and all the way? Yeah. So she,
1: so she had, until she went to kindergarten, she was in an inclusive preschool. So she got special, uh, had a one-on-one aid at preschool. And then even when she went to grade school, she had a one-on-one aid and they do all sorts of things, adapted PE and speech therapy. And, and she and I did some therapy to try to help with the reactive attachment disorder, but things really went South so to speak, when she was in junior high, because her mental health really started to suffer and she became severely depressed and anxious and, um, in junior and it, okay. yeah, and that's, it's very typical with all the hormones, you know, dumping in, but when you add that layer onto a child who already has special needs, it makes it really difficult.
0: That makes sense. So it was the common things that preteens and kids go through but compounded by her special needs. And how were you able to uh, work through that with her?
1: Well, her story is not the model, but I, when you and I talked earlier, I would say, I think it's really important for parents that are considering adoption or are in this adoptive world, especially with international adoption to consider that they're, Not every story has a nice, happy ending. So my daughter went through multiple suicide attempts, and she ended up going out of state to residential treatment for all of high school and in different facilities. The first one was specifically to help her with the reactive attachment disorder, and then actually that was the third one. And then the fourth one really helped her with, she's also autistic. And so that helped with the autism because the reactive attachment disorder and the autism have two different therapies that they recommend and they're, they're kind of competing.
0: Right.
1: So Hmm. she, she really had a hard time during high school. And, and obviously we had a really hard time because it's not what you want for your family. You, you are hoping to have this Wonderful family of four and live the American dream. And you
0: have a son and a daughter. And that's why I really appreciate you saying that, because I do think a lot of people have this undying need to have a child and think it's, you know, I'm a loving person and I'm going to give them what they need. Like you said, you have resources and a family and a home, and it's not always that way. So how far away was she then when she was in these different um, facilities?
1: Yeah. So the she... So we live in California, Santa Barbara, and the first facility was in Montana.
0: Oh wow! Okay, this is far
1: away. Second, yeah, the second one was in Salt Lake City. The third was in Missouri, and the fourth one was back in Utah. So there aren't well, the one that she went to specifically for reactive attachment disorder, it was the only uh, residential treatment center in the whole United States dedicated to reactive attachment disorder Mm -hmm. that could really meet the special needs that she had but her dad and i would trade off and we would go visit her about every six weeks we'd fly to visit her we did weekly family therapy sessions on the phone or by skype um we had individual calls with her i mean it was very even though she was away it and the urgent need of keeping her safe you know she didn't have access To knives and medication and anything that she could do to harm herself when she was in those facilities, but still had some pretty serious um, suicidal ideations. And
0: while she was, we knew
1: that we were doing the best we could for her because her needs were far greater than what we anticipated. And oh
0: my goodness, it sounds like you did everything possible. And I, as you're talking, did you ever think? even that first facility, did you think there was a light at the end of the tunnel? Do you think there was a way for her to get better, so to speak, or feel better or be um, more of that without having to go? Would you think she'd be coming home and be able to function in the home and not have to go again?
1: Well, we certainly never anticipated she'd be gone for four years. I I mean, the first facility, I remember going there and that's got to be one of the worst things a parent will ever have to do is drop their child off at a facility with an unending, you you don't know when you're going to pick them up and you don't know if it's going to help.
0: So you dropped her off knowing this is indefinite. Yeah. I don't know if she can be I'm, for, I'm searching for the word, but cured, right? You don't know if she's going to come home and be okay. Or so right. that is just torture. I can't even imagine.
1: And it was interesting there because in front of their chapel, they had a, a, it's not a memorial because no one passed away, but it was a, a thing where there were all these rocks piled up and they, they had a little sign. They encouraged their graduates or people who had gone through the program To take a rock to remember their journey. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me hope because I thought, well, other people have been there and done this and they can get better. Mm -hmm. And I always had the sense that, you know, I have a belief of faith that God doesn't give you more than you can handle and that everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. But during this four-year period, I definitely started, I am not equipped to do this. And maybe you made a mistake. I mean, there were, there were times that her dad and I talked about early on, did we make a mistake? And I mean, we would never send her back to Russia because obviously that was a horrible situation, but it'd be worse. But, you know, would we ever allow her to be adopted by another family that was more prepared for the needs that she had? And we, we never, other than talking to each other, and probably this is the first time I've even said that aloud.
0: Mm -hmm. It's Um, so honest because who who wouldn't, what human wouldn't think of that. That's why I'm wondering what made you get through those times. When the two of you, like, how did you stay strong? The two of you and persevere through.
1: Well, I didn't do it well for many, many years. I was very much of a perfectionist and a control freak. And I did really good work at my job because I knew what I was supposed to do when I was at work, but at home, I felt so incompetent as a mother. And then I have this story of my husband was an alcoholic and he was very high functioning but mm, we were not our marriage was not doing well and so we did end up getting divorced when he when uh, my daughter was in high school and but through the process of parenting Katie and then divorcing my husband and then my son had some issues after that i learned to become a recovering perfectionist and give up that illusion of control and And really to understand that I felt like I had done something wrong to create all of these situations and really I didn't, I was doing the best I could. And um, so I started to learn that I could only control my stuff and not other people's stuff. And I just had to trust that there was a bigger plan that I couldn't see that, that the reason Katie was in my family was maybe had nothing to do with me. That's right. And that it was just to save her from life in an orphanage.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There was something large, much larger going on. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's so tough Valerie. And yeah, you being able to persevere through that. So when you got a divorce, you and your husband, did you still stay where you t- together in in the parenting of your son and in your daughter and still go visit, like take turns visiting her and still did good, good co-parenting?
1: Yeah, we had a very collaborative divorce okay. um and he actually got sober the weekend I kicked him out. Oh, okay. Thankfully. And so um we did travel together. We continued to co-parent successfully because Katie is now tw- she's almost 23 and she's never going to just be okay. She mm. she lives in a group home now, but and she does her art and she does some music and she's safe and she hasn't had a, a psychiatric incident, which has required her to go to the hospital since before COVID started. And so that is a win.
0: That is a huge win. And where is this home that she's living in right now?
1: It's in Riverside, which is about four hours from our home. And yeah, not too bad. Because she has reactive attachment disorder, there's that filter of she she doesn't really care if she sees us. Okay. Okay, So it's really interesting because yeah. if it was my son who I'm very close to, I would want to go visit often and we have a reciprocal relationship, but with sure. my daughter, you know, I, I, because of COVID didn't see her for quite a while, but I did see her at Christmas. And then I saw her a couple of weeks ago and, you know, she's happy to go out to dinner, but
0: but she's she's not, fine. she doesn't really care. Okay. So I think that's, again, important to define the reactive attachment disorder where when you first, I know you talked about it a lot here, but when you first say it, it seems like they'd be reactive when they're away from you, but it's quite the opposite.
1: Yeah. It's an insecure attachment to their primary caregiver.
0: So there's basically, in other words, no attachment, like she's not attached with you because she's going to get hurt. So that's her survival and defense mechanism.
1: Right. And I, and you know, I'm not particularly attached to her because we didn't really have that parent-child relationship that was rewarding where even though it was hard Mm -hmm. times, we had close experiences.
0: Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And that's also your protection.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I wish that, so in our area, there just aren't, experts that are reactive attachment experts Mm -hmm. that could have really worked on this when she was younger.
0: So it was in high school that she went to the specific facility for reactive attachment disorder. Right.
1: And they work with first, they work with dogs and they help develop attachment to dogs. Okay. And then they want that to apply to parents. And that does to some degree, she definitely learned some skills that makes her attached. She's very attached to her brother.
0: Oh, she is um, okay. But
1: even still, she he doesn't see her, and she won't ask about him. And it's just very interesting.
0: Yes. Okay. So, so your relationship with her today is you go visit sometimes. Is she calling the house ever, or you're calling she, her?
1: Uh, I will call or text her, and probably in the last two and a half years, I've gotten one text from her where she initiated it.
0: Wow. Okay.
1: So we're not even on her radar screen.
0: And what about your son? Is she texting him more regularly?
1: She she doesn't even text him. So wow. okay. If I talk with her when I saw her, I said, "Oh, do you want to call your brother? Do a Facetime with your brother?" And so we did that. Mm-hmm. But I, it's almost her brain is just not.
0: It's not wired. A,
1: she's she's twenty three almost, but she's twenty three going on eleven or twelve. So okay. she's very young.
0: That makes happy. sense. That's a good way to explain that, so we could understand. And is how long will she live? Is this will she live in this home indefinitely?
1: She can live there indefinitely um, because of her combination of special needs. She is has um, permanent disability status through Social Security, and so that sets her up for care and, for life her life okay. um, because okay. she, she can't live independently. She'll, she'll never be able to live independently because right. even though with her autism and her reactive attachment disorder, she may be able to work and in, live independently with the mental health, the bipolar disorder okay. that overrides her capabilities um, just with the autism and the reactive attachment disorder.
0: Okay. Wow. This again, it's uh, go ahead. I was going to say,
1: so if there are people listening yeah. that are struggling with this stuff, um, I've had quite a journey in working with the systems and both the school system to get her a fair and appropriate public education where the school district um, pays for her out-of-state education because they cannot provide it locally, but also how do you work through Social Security and get this um handled so that she gets the benefits that are available to her and should be. A person like her is definitely a kind of person we are wanting to take care of in society. But please, I would love to help someone else just point them in the right direction if they're struggling with either of those things or international adoption.
0: Absolutely. And this is another part of your why. And Absolutely. Abs- yeah. To share this story and even even if yes people are still going to adopt internationally if they could be armed with the knowledge that you have and be more prepared because you were not if you would have had you then <laughs> I mean you know that would have been at least you would have been prepared of what you were walking into and maybe you still would have done the same because you know everything happens as it's intended like you said so Wow. It's really is so good to hear. And like you said, and it's so clear, you've done the best you can and you are still doing that. And it is really inspiring to hear because yes, it doesn't look the same, right? Everyone's adoption. So it's really important to talk about what would you share with parents that are looking to adopt in general?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one of the best things is that the internet was not robust when we were adopting my daughter. So we would get on these email lists and threads and we were connecting with other people, but the agencies only tell you their success stories. They don't tell you about the hard situations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so our group of people that we got connected through just listservs back in the day, we we and one other, one other family have the children that were most damaged in the orphanages. And most of them have very happy, healthy, thriving children. So I say that because not every international adoption story ends like ours, where it's very challenging and difficult, but there's just so much more information available today than there was 22 years ago when we did it. So I would definitely get involved in international, if it's a well, wherever you're going to adopt National from, order. get involved in support yeah. groups and understand kind of what some of the potential issues are. Right. And if you're going to an international uh, adoption, look at, learn about reactive attachment disorder and understand what that is and what it looks like and what some of the resources are for you. If your child comes home with some of those issues
0: and you would say learn about that no matter what regard if you're looking international adoption and not think oh well we'll look at that if my child has that but you're saying proactively no matter what look at um reactive attachment disorder
1: yeah because you can't really tell you Mm -hmm. can't tell when they're so young right because they don't exhibit the behaviors and you can't really pull apart what is because they don't understand your language or you smell different or you have you're not their normal caregiver just it's very common so i would check it out and understand it before you go okay. go too far down the path
0: okay and what is something um some words of wisdom or motivation or hope of a family that's already say they just got home and they didn't realize that they're going to have like you, like, you know, so many needs and special needs, and they weren't informed and they weren't aware, and they're in the throes of it. What would you say is one thing that you could help share with them to provide some sort of motivation?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to deviate and say I'm in two things. Okay. We were so fortunate. My parents lived within five miles of us. And okay. so, my mom particularly was so helpful with my daughter and would give me respite from parenting. And so she would, was totally on board with whatever therapy we were doing. And okay. my daughter felt most comfortable in a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. Um, there was something about the sensory part of it that felt really good to her. And my mom happened to have a pool next to her house. So they went swimming okay. a lot. And so find your support group. Okay. Okay. And then there was one other thing. Oh, when your child is preschool age or in school, don't be afraid to ask for and advocate for all of the services available to your child, because okay. every child through the Free and Appropriate Public Education Act, it's called FAPE, yes. is eligible for services. And so they should be testing your child if there are things of concern.
0: That's great. We had a conversation with another guest that brought this up. So it's clearly very important. It keeps coming up. So that is fantastic um, wisdom to impart. And I'll definitely leave your book and resources in the show notes and how to contact you. Um, I do want to ask you this because we ask all of our guests this. And also because you were told at a young age that you weren't going to be able to have children and, you know, given devastating news so i ask if you could tell your 15 year old self what that something from what you know today what is one thing that you would want your 15 year old self to know
1: i would want my 15 year old self to know that there is not a formula or a script for a good life and that there is an ebb and flow to life and each challenge that you face brings you closer to who you are always meant to be and you are worth it and you are worth pursuing and you are worth, um, you, you, you're just worth it. That Mm -hmm. sounds so silly, but, um, I, I had a lot of questions when I was 15 about, was I worth it? And and, did I deserve this and Mm -hmm. judged myself a lot. And so I would say be imperfectly beautiful and unique. Mm -hmm.
0: I love that. And that is such perfect words to to end our conversation on. I love leaving on that. You are such an inspiration. I would love to talk to you more. And so thank you for taking the time to share this with me and everybody. I can tell it's really important to you to make sure you're getting this word out and um, all the resources and knowledge that you've built over all these years.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a privilege to talk to you and Mm -hmm. be able to share this. And I really appreciate the work that you and Amanda are doing to help young women.
0: Thank you so much for joining us and for listening to this episode. Please share with your friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe. We're looking forward to the next episode and we'll talk to you soon.